Let us pray. O God, because without you we are not able to please you, mercifully grant that your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I want you to think uh, of someone who has influenced your faith walk. Uh, Somebody who's been a leader. Somebody that's been a teacher. Somebody that you admire the way they lived out their faith as well as the, the way they taught uh, or taught you or that meaningful relationship you may have had with them. So the, the pattern of their life as well as their ability to teach. It is not uncommon for us to want to be like our teacher, our leader, to imitate and model our life after them. But if they were a mature believer, I'm guessing they would be quick to say, don't imitate me but catch my spirit, catch my heart, catch my passion for Jesus. So don't, you, uh, Paul would talk about imitating him. He'd say, he, he would say, imitate me, and that is as I imitate Christ. And so as you see Christ in me, imitate that. Today we're going to cover some of the most well-known verses, it seems, in the whole Bible that are widely misinterpreted. Jesus is instructing his disciples, uh, as he has been the last few weeks that we've met. We're in this sermon on the plain, if you will. Uh, and he's teaching along as he has selected his disciples, and he, then he's teaching them. And uh, these verses are a continuation of that sermon. And he wants his disciples to have a heart like his. So this, this is the context for these verses. These verses seem a bit like, you know, these short, pithy little statements. They're, they pack a lot of meaning, very short, and it seems as if perhaps Luke just, uh, you know, was kind of taken shorthand at this point. Jesus said this, he said this, he said this. And what's the context? Well, I think the context is still here in that he's, he's pulled his disciples out. He's teaching the disciples how to become disciples. And in becoming a disciple, they're to be like him. So as disciples, we are to have the spirit of Jesus as we represent him to our broken world. So that's that's how I see this unfolding in these few verses we're going to cover today. And the first thing that we see is the first characteristic of a disciple who is like Jesus is a disciple is open. A disciple is open. Verse 37 says... Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Now this, this, this may be, I don't know, one of the most quoted verses at this present time. Um, people who don't even claim to be a Christian seem to know this verse and can, and, and can seemingly, seemingly quote it rather quickly. After all, at this point in time in our society, I think maybe the greatest sin one can, uh, actually um, participate in is judging others. So when there's an, a, an opinion presented and somebody doesn't like the way they hear the opinion, um, 
you're supposed to, this is the comeback. And you can, and you can imagine this. But we don't want to have any, uh, perception that we are judging others. This, this verse gets to be so misinterpreted that people claim that you can't, that, that, uh, that you really can't claim what is wrong. You can't say that wrong is wrong. You can't say that right is right. Why? Well, because you're judging in this. You might be in a conversation about one of these latest hot topics today of whatever, same-sex rights or transgender legislation, and your friend might quote this verse to you and, 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 and state that we cannot judge what is right. And it's not our place to judge. And case in point, um, I saw a post from a friend of mine who posted an article about the New York City Council approving a bill to allow a third gender on birth certificates. And then someone posted this comment on that. The, the, the fellow that posted it was, is a pastor, and uh, I don't know who it is that posted this comment, but here's the comment. It is interesting to think that Jesus taught that we are not to judge, and he taught that we are to treat others as we would want them to treat us. Perhaps we need to pray for strength to listen to their stories and courage to see life from their perspective. Maybe all of us will grow closer to Christ. Um, I think this is the typical kind of response that you are likely to get around the water cooler if you're going to talk about such things. It is not our place to judge. And the... uh, there's, there's just as an aside. There's something wrong in this argument that we need to see things from their perspective. If we're talking about a birth certificate, we're not talking about somebody who claims that they've been with gender dysphoria, who claims that they've been born into a wrong body. We're talking about parents deciding something for a child. So, I don't think I would have a problem uh, arguing that this is wrong. But this is the kind of argument you get into in the sense that who are you to judge? And after all, we all know that the Bible says we're not to judge. You just leave it to God. So when applied consistently, this principle, we cannot discern or make a judgment call on anything. How could we? And how can you, how can you be selective as to what you're going to say, okay, this is okay for us to judge on, but this okay is not okay for us to judge on. What does this mean? And, of course, I think the, the way our society is going, it really is continuing to move that way. That you can't, what you, you know, there are things that we used to be able to have a judgment on, and now we can't. And I think as time goes by, and I think if these things are carried out to their logical end, you know, even decisions over dinner are going to be wrong, I mean, if you're, if you're actually able to make the decision, you're wrong. Cause, and, and that's what this really means. And also, of course, in this kind of child abuse that we're embracing in our culture today, if, if, if a child thinks he's born into the wrong body, what do you do? You listen to the child. And you embrace that. And you take him to, um, 
you, you take him or her to the, to the, to the doctors and, and start the uh, puberty blockers and all those kinds of things because the child is, is, must be your final authority. Because who are you to judge anyway? Well, I who are you to judge when your child is too young to know that they need a coat when they go outside and you tell them they need a coat? It's that same age child that these kinds of things are truly happening with. But it becomes a condition of society, and it comes as a shock to me. When you move down two, three generations from me, these things won't be a shock to anybody. It, the thing that would be strange would be taking somebody with opinions like me <laughs> and having them voice them at that time, because the, the voicing of the opinion would, that is contrary to the natural just flow of however, whatever goes is all right. But what we have to ask ourselves, is this what Jesus meant? Is this what Jesus meant, that we're not supposed to be able to judge or decide anything? Well, no. He actually calls us to use discernment. Discernment is actually a spiritual gift. The Greek word translated as judge is also translated in the Bible, in our English, in our English translations, as to decide or prefer or make a decision. So again, are you able to make a decision for what we're going to have for dinner? <clears throat> is that really wrong? But the Bible says you're not supposed to make a decision. That is not exactly what that means. Jesus actually teaches us how to judge whether a person is good or evil in the very next section of Scripture, in this very same sermon. He's teaching us this so that we can use discernment and judge what is true or what is good or what is evil. The text of the Bible, not this one verse taken out and taken out of context without any understanding of where it came from, would only help validate this very thing. We're to use discernment, we're to use judgment all the time. Um, Jesus is not banning us from making decisions. In this context, teaching his disciples to become like him, who he has just pulled as his apostles out of the group of there are, in this, you got to remember this context is, it's got these rings. So there are the 12 that are close that are called to be apostles. There are the disciples who came to learn from him, who are following him, who want to know more from him. Then this outer ring would be the, the, like, whatever we want to call them, the world, where they've come out of curiosity to see that Jesus heals. So there's these, there are varying, uh, depths of interest in those who Jesus is talking to who are in the crowd. But Jesus is talking to the disciples, it says. And in this context, if he's training them to become like him, what this context really means, what this statement really means is, don't be judgy. Don't be judgy. Do not condemn people as unfit to hear the gospel. In sales, we were taught to not prejudge a sale. Because... If you're selling something and it's going to cost a, a good bit of money, it's easy for the uh, guy who's comfortable in the car just stay in the car and not, go, not get out of the car, go in and have to confront somebody who he doesn't know, who he might, who, if you've just come from somebody who essentially slams the door in your face, this becomes kind of a thing where I could talk myself out of even going in. This place is run down. They can't afford what I have. Uh, they're not going to buy anyway. The last guy yelled at me. So you talk yourself into these things and you don't go. Well, the concept of not prejudging the sale is you go in and you still present. 
And you don't know how many no's it takes you to get to the yes. Well, in, if you're going to be like Jesus, if you're going to be a disciple of him, if you're going to represent him to, the, to a broken world, we can't fool ourselves and let on like the world is not broken. So when a sinner is coming to you, whatever form or shape that sinner may be in, we welcome them. We're open. We're open to um, receiving this person as a friend, as, as somebody we would like to get to know so that we can actually build a relationship, so that we can share Jesus with them. Um, one, of the, one of the problems of the church can be this very thing. Um, my, my way of describing it would be we stand on the, the porch and throw rocks at sinners sometimes. So the voice that the people hear is the one that says you're wrong. Are they wrong? Yeah, they could be wrong. And, what, and, and, and hopefully, as we get to the end of this, it'll, it'll come back around um, and, and help us buckle this up. But just because we're wrong too. We might have this area of life, okay, and we're, we're going to talk about this more, but, but to stand on the rocks and throw, stand on the porch and throw rocks at, at the quote, quote, sinner, because their sin is obvious, is not the way to love people into the kingdom. We build relationship, we share meals, and, um, and you build a friendship, and you care about them in a deep and passionate way because you love them, and, you, and if you love them, you're going to tell them about Jesus. And because they see, have seen your life changed, it could be that they would even want to follow this Jesus you're speaking of. So I think the question for us under this, how open, uh, or a disciple is open, how do you receive those who are different from you? It, it is easy for us to receive people who look like we do, live near where we do, etc. But how do you receive others who are different from you? Who might the Lord have for you to be open to receiving? A disciple is open, and um, that disciple is open to receiving those who are not like him. And then the next thing we see is a disciple is forgiving. So the next part of that verse is, forgive and you will be forgiven. And that perhaps this is even picking up on the theme that we discussed last week, where there's, there's a, uh, he described how you're to treat your enemies. Perhaps he's, he's picking up on that. A disciple does not hold grudges. Uh, and there is no doubt we're going to be done wrong by others. Sometimes intentionally by others. Sometimes, quite unintentionally, people will do things. And because of just the situations, it may cause us some suffering or hurt. But it wasn't necessarily a, a, an intentional um, you know, lob toward us. Then, then there will be those who do have intentional lobs toward us where we are hurt intentionally by other people. Either way, a disciple forgives. And that wouldn't be our first instinct. It may take time. It may be a struggle. It may be something we continually have to work on. 
And in our own strength, I think it would be impossible. But when we understand the gospel well, we understand how much we've been forgiven by Jesus, on, by, by his work on the cross. And through the Holy Spirit, we have the ability then to extend this same sort of grace to others and forgive. And essentially Jesus is, is saying here, if one does not forgive, he has not been forgiven. There's, there's this correlation between the two, that it's not, if you forgive, you will be saved. The reality of the whole is, if you've been saved, you're going to forgive. And, and, and that's not to discount the struggle that we may have in doing so, but through the help of the Holy Spirit, we are able to forgive. Now, Jesus um, acted on our behalf before we, well, before we even existed, but he didn't wait for us to get cleaned up. He didn't wait for us to come to him and say, I've done wrong, now will you take my sin? He, he already acted. He died on the cross, bore our pain and bore our suffering, and took it upon himself. And likewise, we have the ability to bear the cost of forgiveness, and we don't need to wait for those who've wronged us to ask for forgiveness or repent or even know that they've done wrong to us. Now, that would be, that's what I would like. To, when somebody's done me wrong, I want, them, I, I want them to know how wrong they've done me. Then I want them to feel sorry for it. Then I want them to repent. But a lot of times, it's like driving in traffic, and those people that cut me off in traffic, they don't even, you know, they're just singing. They, they, don't, they, they, don't, they don't know the grief they're creating in me. They don't care. Well, I can choose to be angry still at them, or I can forgive them, and I can bear the cost of that aggravation, and I can move forward. I think a lot of times, a lot of our um, suffering, a lot of our wrongdoing may be very similar in the sense that somebody has done something to us and they don't even know it. And there are plenty of other places. There are plenty of there are plenty of other times where it's it is right to go to a person and talk. That's that's a, that would be another page of instruction, <laughs> and it does it's in there. But uh, there may be situations that had happened in the past that was a long time ago. Perhaps we can't even talk to those people, so you can't get that piece done at this point. Well, you still have the you still have the ability to forgive and release that person from that burden. And again, they may not even know that they caused you the harm. But you are only responsible for yourself. So I think if, if a disciple is forgiving, the question might be, are you willing to pay the cost? Or are you willing to bear the cost of forgiveness for others? And then as the Lord's stirring in us, as we're in this passage, who, who might the Lord want you 
to forgive. Who might the Lord be asking you to extend that kind of grace to? So a disciple is open, a disciple is forgiving, and a disciple is generous. The next verse is 38. It says, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. So the, this, this one, um, it will help us to understand that as, as we proclaim in our, throughout our service every Sunday, we claim that the Lord owns everything. That all we have is His. He, we wouldn't have anything if He hadn't given it to us. And recognizing He is the sovereign one, we recognize our blessings in this. And so we don't hold on to them tightly. Why? Well, if to give to those in need, if we're to give His resources and He owns everything, How can we count it as a real cost to give what we have away? And if we're we're too concerned about that, if we're holding on to it too too tightly, we stop this flow, actually. Because we're we're merely stewards of everything that we have. You know, you're not taking anything with you. The question for us is, do you give to see others blessed? Do you give to bless others? This command comes on the heels of the command to forgive. So we're to be forgiving, and then he goes into this giving. So I think a disciple doesn't only forgive, but the disciple also gives. So there's this generosity. So And forgiveness comes out of generosity, And like the Lord forgave us, then the Lord also blesses us with eternal life. So there's the forgiveness plus the blessing. And the illustration he's using is like as if you went to the market to buy wheat, and the uh, person at the market uses a measuring gauge to measure out the wheat for you, and in that, it's filled, and then he presses it down so he gets all the air out of it. And then he shakes it from side to side so all the nooks and crannies get filled in. And then he continues to put it on until it heaps up on top. Now it's heaping up and flowing over the sides, and then he like pokes holes in it. And then in those holes, puts more wheat. This is this generous giving that in, in this concept, this is the image that would have come, that this marketer, the person selling the wheat, wants to make sure you have an abundance of this measureful. Well, that's the way it is when you're dealing with God. And do you see God that way? Do you see God as the generous giver? And the, and the, and the principle is, is if, if you were to give, God's going to give to you in return. And it's a flow. It's the, the, um, the context is about a, a flow. You are the, what God's resources are to flow through. <laughs> and as you give... He will give to you to supply your needs. The disciples um, were concerned at a point, later we'll, we'll cover this in Luke 18, the disciples were concerned after the encounter with the young rich ruler. And they're like, well, if, you know, if, if he can't do it, who can? Who could possibly be saved? He says, well, with God, all things are possible. And their response is, well, 
well, we've left homes and, and families to follow you. And his response says, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. <clears throat> the understanding is it's, it's a, it is a flow. Um, and as you're given away, it will come to you, and, and, and God's the supplier of all things. That was his promise to them, it's his promise to us, and, and, and then in the, on the end of the 38, it says, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So imagine the generous giver measuring in the way described, as opposed to uh, filling this measure to the once to the to the brim, then taking your straight straight edge and and slicing the top off like you're measuring flour for your cakes, you slice the top off so that you get just what you've paid for, and nothing more. If that's the type of vendor you would be, then that's the way you'll receive, because that's the way it'll be measured for you. It's a, it's a principle of flow. If you recognize the, this generous grace that you have received, then you will want to be generous to others. If you give sparingly, you will reap sparingly, the Lord says. And his desire is to bless through you. And if you were to be more like Jesus, then as we get, we didn't, the whole concept, we, ne- we never, you don't give to get. You don't say, well, I understood if I gave away, more would come to me, therefore I'll give this and see if, see if I get more in return. The concept is you give to bless, and you give out of generosity. You give out of, the, out of your abundance because you have been given in abundance, whether it's material or spiritually. Uh, we have been given abundance because of this abundance, generous grace that God has given us. And out of that, we give to others. And the Lord who owns all things will flow those resources through you. And if you decide to shut the throttle down, then the, uh, the, the flow will cease. The more you give away, the more you'll receive in material and spiritual blessings, both in, both in this life and the life to come. So where is the Lord leading you? to give to further his kingdom. And it may be a person who is in need who who needs to receive from you. And it could be somebody that needs to receive this generous grace that you've received. And tying these all those together in that very uh, significant way, which is more significant than the material wealth that we have. But I, but and and this but this principle of flow has to do with it, how you handle your material blessings will be an indicator of how you handle your spiritual blessings. If we hold on to them tightly, we may not really believe that the Lord wants to bless us. We we may not truly understand the generous grace that He's given us. So we we're, we're turned back to the gospel at each one of these. Number four, a disciple chooses his teacher with wisdom. Verse 39, it says, He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? 
will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. If, if, the, if this context is about recognizing who your teacher is, recognizing who you're following, and then living so that you're becoming like that teacher, it would be important to understand who our teacher is. Many people choose wrong teachers. And you know how that goes. And you, you, you hear these stories of the David Koresh, the Charles Manson, and these kinds of things who, who had followers. And you're like, well, how did these people get so far astray? And when people start uh, using the Bible to prove their points, but they're not really teaching you the Bible, and they have not been spiritually reborn, yet they are spiritually blind, they will lead the spiritually blind down into the pit. Becky and I, a long time ago, were in Atlanta, in, the, in what it was, Atlanta Underground. I don't know that that exists anymore. I really don't even understand what it was. But we were, we were there, and we saw a blind person leading a blind person. And I was like, well, there it is. We've heard about it all our life, and there it is. And can you imagine the danger if one were to fall, the other one would fall? It was, it, was a, it was a cute picture as we saw it. And I thought of sweetness, and I didn't think of danger necessarily. But, but if you put that into the spiritual category, the spiritually blind only have one option, and that is to lead the spiritually blind. So if we're going to be like Jesus, we want to follow Jesus. We want to know the true Jesus. And we want to follow the one who gives us sight, because he has no darkness in him at all. He is the, the light of the world. He is God himself in flesh. We want to follow him, and we want to know him and know that we're following him. And therefore, he has given us his word. And there are, there are teachings among us, and it's prevalent in our community. And if you've got a neighbor, they've been exposed to it, that if you, if, if the teaching is, and, this, and, this, and no, nobody is as direct as what I'm saying. This is the end result as to what the teaching is. The teaching is that it didn't stop here, that the Lord is still speaking to you. And as the Lord still speaks to you, and I'm not saying that the Lord doesn't somehow guide and direct us, that we can't communicate with him. That's what prayer is all about, yes. But as far as his revelation of who he is and how we're to live, etc., he's done that in his word. The other side of the story would be, he's not done. And the book is not closed. And therefore, if you listen closely, if you'll practice these things, this comes from a leader. A leader, you don't pick this up on your own. A leader teaches you, if you'll do these things that I do, you can listen and discern for yourself what the Lord is telling you to do. And ultimately, his direct revelation to you surpasses then whatever is in the Bible. So you don't really go into the Bible to know the true Jesus and how he's revealed himself. You receive this direct revelation and you kind of create Jesus or a God in your own image. This is happening all over the place. And that's why those people could be led astray very easily. We want to worship the true Jesus. He has revealed himself in the Bible. We, we don't claim this. He claims he's the only way. He claims that people don't like it when we say that. He says... The one true God of the universe says, I have revealed myself in this way. It's in a triune nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
The Son is to redeem my people. And he is the only way you, you have to get to me. So that's this con- all that is very contrary to what the world wants to tell you, which is whatever God you choose, you can follow him, and it's going up the same mountain. It's just a different path to get there. That's not what the God of the Bible tells us. So I think it's very important that we choose and choose our teacher well. How do we know that we are following the one true God, the one true Jesus? And that's where I tell you all, all the time, I'm aware of how ignorant I am. If the Lord speaks through me, I I am very pleased. But the reality is we need to be like the Bereans, and you need to be in your Bible to say, is what he's saying, does it make sense? Is and, and the Lord, and will the Lord speak to you through that? That answer is yes. But you're not to ju- just as if we're not to trust David Koresh and all he says, you don't trust me for all I say. But it has to line up with what you know and understand and read and what you're feeding yourself about the one true God. So a disciple chooses his teacher with wisdom, and a disciple examines his life is the last thing. A disciple examines his life. This is the key. A disciple examines his life. 41, and this you're familiar. Why do you see a speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice that log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me get that speck out of your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The first thing in this, I want us to understand in this teaching is he doesn't, this is not a teaching that we don't speak into each other's lives about our problems and about our sins. On the contrary, he even, that last um, line, then you will see clearly to take the speck out, the, the speck that is in your brother's eye. The reality is, he, he's not telling us not to do that. But isn't it easy? And isn't it far easier to see sins in other people than in ourselves? And this is where we're, we're buckling up where we began, in that judgment. And if we're going to stand on the, on, as, as the church, if we're going to stand on the porch and throw rocks at people, we're making judgments. And we're calling them out for their sin and expecting people who don't know Jesus to live like they are truly saved and regenerated and born again people. That should be problem. We everybody should recognize that's problematic. That that's. If, but if we don't understand our depravity, we think this would work. I'll yell at you and tell you what you're doing is wrong, and then you will change and become like me, and then I will consider you saved. Well, what we really want to see uh, is changed hearts. You know, it's not uncommon for someone who yells the loudest to be suffering from that same kind of sin in themselves but they don't recognize it in themselves. See, the, the, the legalists uh, and the fundamentalists in, of the church do this very thing, and they've trained people for it very well. And if, and, if you're, and if your salvation truly is by works, and they won't say this, but they act like it because it is, because they know that you could lose your salvation if you don't do right, well, that puts, the, that puts your salvation only in your hands. And you've got to do right or you're going to lose it. If that's where you are, then if you've had a good week, and I, heck, I, I know nobody that, that believes as strongly as I do what I 
speak to you. Yet I know in myself, if I've done well throughout this week, I start getting a little more puffed up. And I'm thinking, I deserve this grace that God's given me. And then when I see somebody who's doing things differently than I do, and differently than I would, it's easy for me to look down my nose on them. And what is categorized as the church has come across this way a lot. So instead of being open to receiving people, they seem very judgmental. Well, because they are. And they don't see themselves for what they are, but they see, they have reduced their depravity, they've reduced the depths of sin to a handful of things. And you know how that goes. You, if you, I don't, I don't, what, choose, smoke, or dance, or go with girls who do, or, or something like that. It's supposed to be a rhyme, so I got something wrong in there. But that's the gist of it. And if, and if, and if we, if we can complete that, we're in good shape. That's, that's not the depravity that the Bible tells us we have in us. If, if, if your Christianity means quitting only a couple of bad habits, then you've missed the point entirely. What he's, what, what he's describing here and what he's telling them is you need to examine your own life. A true disciple, as opposed to being ready and, and quick to uh, fire out condemnation is going to be open to receiving people in grace because he will have examined his own life and know how far separated he is from a holy God. And the only thing that bridges that gap, he knows, is Jesus Christ. And he can not only answer the question well when asked, you know, what do I knew, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life, that is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't just know that when he's asked to, to have the right answer. It's not he's regurgitating truth. He knows it deep in his heart. He knows how depraved he is, though his sins may look entirely different from those people who are off the porch. But instead of throwing rocks, he wants to receive them. And his desire is that they would come to the cross to receive grace, to minister to their sins, that they would recognize their separation, not from good people, but from a holy God. And the only thing that's going to help them with that would be that, that Jesus Christ on the cross and filling in that gap between, to bridge that gap between sinful human being and holy God. The gospel has that way of leveling us out. And so each one of these descriptions that the Lord Jesus gives us, we don't conjure the strength up on our own. We, it drives us right back to the cross. It right, drives us back to the, to the gospel because in the gospel, we, it's through the gospel that we understand how desperately we need saved. And then 10, 15, 20, 30 years later, it still shows us how desperately we are needing saving. So it's not the one-time past tense, but it's the thing for the here and now which feeds us to continue to grow in him. A disciple longs to be like his teacher, Jesus, 
And we check our hearts and our motives of why we're doing what we're doing by seeking the Lord as the psalmist did. Psalm 139, 23-24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way, grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.